Now, you may know uh, that Ben Franklin is the one credited with saying that uh, in this world, there is nothing certain except death and taxes, right? Death and taxes. And, you know, for the most part, that's true. Statistically, 100% of people die. So I'll just bring you that good news this morning that you will all die. Uh, so death is pretty much undefeated, right? Uh, taxes, well, not so much. It depends who you are, right? The, the ultra-rich somehow figure out a way uh, to get out of paying taxes. Uh, but for the most part, uh, people pay their taxes. Uh, and no one likes paying taxes. And no one likes death. Uh, so it's interesting to me that today, uh, these are the two issues uh, that the religious leaders are going to question uh, Jesus about to try to trap him uh, in this passage today. So as we think about uh, where we are during Passion Week, remember that it's still Tuesday now. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. He came in on Sunday night, had uh, some, uh, the issue with the fig tree on Monday, uh, clearing the temples on uh, the temple courts on Monday, uh, and now it's Tuesday. He's already had the confrontation with the chief priests and the scribes last week over where do you get this authority from, and now it's still Tuesday, and we're going to have two different uh, confrontations, one with the Pharisees and the Herodians about this issue of taxes, and then the Sadducees question him on death, especially resurrection after death. And as always, Jesus easily and deftly handled their questions with no problem at all, and, and rather than cowering at this intimidating sight of many people coming to him uh, in their authoritative robes, uh, Jesus uh, easily evaded their authority, and, and he used the questions that they asked uh, to teach them and to teach the many witnesses who were there on the Temple Mount that morning. And so what he taught about the question of taxes is that true disciples of Jesus must offer their whole selves to God. And what he taught on death and resurrection is that resurrection is a fact. You can believe that or you cannot believe it, but beware to those uh, who aren't prepared when death comes and God's judgment follows. So we'll begin with this question of taxes. Uh, Mark chapter uh, 12, verses 13 to 17 uh, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Well, uh, that is a, a very interesting passage, but let's, let's figure out who the players are, right, uh, before we dig into it. So uh, verse 13, the they, uh, that is referenced there in 13, uh, verse 13, this is the chief priests and the, the scribes from, that we talked about last week. Uh, remember last week they tried to catch him in that trap, by whose authority are you doing these things? And Jesus said, uh, I'll tell you what, you answer my question, then I'll, I'll answer your question. And they refused, they took a back door out of his question, and so uh, he refused to answer their question. And then he told the parable of the vine growers against them, uh, so that they would know that judgment was coming against them. Well, the chief priests and the scribes epically failed, right? They, they could not handle uh, Jesus, so what do they do? They send the Pharisees and the Herodians to take their best shot at Jesus, and so here they come. 
So the Pharisees are this influential religious sect uh, within Judaism at the time, during the first century. And, you know, they're known for their personal piety and their uh, keeping the law. Uh, and, and they believed in the oral traditions, uh, which were the traditions passed down from the elders from one generation to the next, oral teachings, interpretations. And these things were all written down later uh, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. Uh, but this, the, the Pharisees believed all of these things. And, and they were mostly like middle-class businessmen, you know, fairly well-to-do. Uh, they were the leaders of the synagogues. But for the most part, the, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they're the ones who comprised the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body uh, of Israel. But, but because the Pharisees were very popular with the people, uh, they had a lot of power as well. So that's the Pharisees. Now, on the other hand, the Herodians... They're a political party uh, that was supportive of uh, King Herod Antipas, uh, who was uh, in charge over Israel, Rome's appointed king at that point in time, a Jewish king, but Rome appointed, and he ruled over much of Israel in Jesus's day. And so the Herodians, well, they favored submitting to Herod Antipas uh, and therefore to Rome, and the reason they did that was because they wanted their lives to be made easier. So here you have on one hand the Pharisees who are anti-Rome, uh, they're pro-Israel independence, and then on the other hand you have the Herodians who are supportive of Rome and don't want to take Rome on uh, and fight for independence because they like their lives the way they are, it's easier this way. And so, you know, we tend to lump all these different groups of people in with another. You know, you get the scribes and the Pharisees, the Herodians and uh, the Sadducees. And we tend to think of them all as the same people, but they were very, very different. In fact, uh, in this case, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they had almost nothing in common except the one common goal, the one thing that united them was their desire to be rid of Jesus. So these people are natural enemies because one's pro-Rome, one's anti-Rome, but what brings them together on this day is that they have a desire to plot against Jesus and to kill Jesus because to the, to the Pharisees, he's a threat to their religious authority. To the Herodians, he is a threat to Rome's political authority. And so they lay their trap. Uh, the stated purpose of the question is to catch Jesus in his words. That's they, what they want to do. And so they're not interested in truth, are they? Uh, there may have come a time in their lives when they thought about, you know, could Jesus actually be our Messiah? Could this be the one that has been promised by our scriptures? Well, if that day ever happened to them, they decided that the answer was no. We, we don't believe that Jesus uh, is our Messiah. They'd already determined in their minds uh, that he was the enemy and that something had to be done with him. Now, I always wonder when I read these questions, the, the, these traps that they laid for Jesus, like how long did these guys take trying to figure out what is a trap that we can lay for him that he will not be able to wiggle out of? What's something that we can come up with? And I'm sure they came up with many different ideas, right? Somebody proposes something uh, and the rest of them try and poke holes in it. They try and figure out, nah, that's not going to work. This is what he's going to say. Uh, and so they, they keep working. They keep going back to the drawing board until they come up with an illustration or, or a question that's going to work. And so somebody comes up with the idea of taxes. Oh, wow, we'll ask him this question. It's a yes or no question. He's got to answer one or the other. Uh, boy, you know, this, this sounds really good. Let's, let's go with this one. I think this one's really going to work. This is an inescapable trap. 
And so they approach Jesus with this. And of course, they begin with flattery. Isn't that, isn't that the way you begin when you're trying to trap somebody? You are truthful, Jesus. You defer to no one, right? Uh, just buttering him up uh, big time. So to defer to no one means that uh, he has integrity, character that's beyond question. He's not going to change his answer just because it's religious authorities that are asking the question. He's going to answer truthfully no matter what. And of course, that was true. Jesus did defer to no one. He showed no partiality. He would tell the truth no matter what. Now, I don't know if the Pharisees and Herodians believed that or not, but that was his reputation. And so they remind him of his reputation uh, before they pose the question to him. And this always reminds me of Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And I imagine Jesus just rolling his eyes as they're preparing, you know, buttering it up and, and then, you know, laying the question out on a platter like, here we go, guys, what do you got for me today? Uh, and so he, he receives their question. Now, just so we understand what the question is about, uh, Rome imposed an annual tax on Jews, a per capita tax called the poll tax. Every Jew had to pay one denarius uh, per year uh, just because they were citizens and subjugated under Rome. Now, the Jews, of course, hated this poll tax because it was a symbol of Roman oppression over them, that they were forced to pay this tax. Uh, they hated that. So the, the Pharisees and the Herodians ask uh, Jesus, what about this tax? Should we pay it or should we not pay it? And they thought it was the perfect trap because no matter what he said, he was going to be in trouble with somebody. He's got to answer yes or no, right? It's a yes or no question. So if he answers yes, well, Jesus would be in trouble with the people because the people hated Roman oppression and they did not want to pay this poll tax. Because not only was the tax itself oppressive in their minds, but uh, the coins that you had to pay with were Roman denarii. They have the image of Caesar on the coin. And so that is idolatry. They won't let them pay with the Jewish shekel. They have to pay with the Roman denarius. So they're already upset about being oppressed, and now they're upset because they have to hold this Roman coin that's got uh, this image of Caesar on it. And so uh, the Caesars thought they were gods. They demanded worship. And so this is particularly repugnant to Jews. So what are, the, what are they trying to do here? Remember, the reason why uh, they were afraid to arrest Jesus was because they feared the people. And so they're thinking, you know, if we can get Jesus to say something that will turn public opinion against Jesus, like, yes, you ought to pay the poll tax, well, then maybe the tide will start to turn, and then maybe they can arrest him without fear of reprisal from the crowds. And so this is the back-mind motivation that's going on uh, with this question. If he answers yes, we got him, right? We got him. He's going to lose public support. So saying yes as the answer to the question, that would have been the wrong answer for Jesus. But saying no is also the wrong answer because, you know, Rome would not have taken very long to get wind of the fact that Jesus is out saying don't pay the poll tax. That's revolution. Uh, and so Rome would not have tolerated that so he would have, at best, been arrested, if not uh, certainly much worse. Uh, so the Pharisees, on the one hand, they, pay, they paid the poll tax, but they hated it. The Herodians paid the poll tax and supported paying it. And I can just imagine these two groups, right? They, they've laid the trap, and I can just imagine them going like, oh, we've got him now. Now what's he going to say, right? And Jesus, uh, I, I just love Jesus. He immediately knew that they were trying to trap him. 
you know, they thought he was just an ordinary man. And you can trap ordinary men, right? You, you can catch them in a trap. But since he's God, you're not going to surprise him. You're not, not going to outsmart him. Uh, and so he knows the motives. He knows the false flattery of men. Why are you testing me, he says. Bring me a denarius. Now, I think it's probably significant that Jesus didn't have a denarius in his own possession, right? I think that is, that is significant. It's, it's a symbol of his earthly poverty, right? That he didn't depend on the things of man for existence. He depended on God for all things. And it also shows that even though he is in the world, he's not of the world. Uh, he doesn't support this Roman system, uh, and his goal is not to establish and build material wealth. His goal is to advance and build the kingdom of God. Uh, so I think that's what that shows. So they bring him this denarius, and Jesus inspects it, and he invites them to inspect it, and then he says, uh, whose image is on this coin? Uh, and they answered, Caesar's. And they're probably thinking at this point, you know, this is not going the way we expected. This is a simple yes or no question, just yes or no, Jesus, that's all we need from you. Uh, and he won't do that. Instead of answering yes or no, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Now, in their debates with each other, I guarantee you not one of them came up with that answer that Jesus could possibly give to wiggle out of this trap uh, that was being laid for him. Now, Jesus could have stopped his answer with render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, right? That would have been an acceptable answer, uh, but uh, what, what, is, what is he saying to them? He's saying, look, Caesar has a right to collect certain taxes because God has established Caesar as the authority. And Rome does provide certain civil services like maintenance of roads and aqueducts and sewage and uh, cleaning of uh, garbage collection and that kind of thing. So it's not unreasonable for Rome to collect taxes from them. Uh, but what he added to his answer uh, just changes everything about uh, what the, the context of his answer is going to be. He answers, and and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus is teaching, look, you have obligations to the government, but those obligations are limited. The Jews felt Caesar's oppressive hand in, in every aspect of their lives, but Caesar can only govern what God has allowed Caesar to govern. And so what these uh, Pharisees and, and Herodians tried to set for Jesus as a trap uh, turns into a discussion about image-bearing, about image-bearing. Uh, and so what we see here is that the coin, the denarius, that belongs to Caesar. Uh, the fact that his symbol is on it, the symbol is a sign of ownership and authority. And so the coin bears Caesar's image, and so we render that back to him. But Caesar's jurisdiction is limited. Uh, he could only govern and collect taxes because that's the authority that God gave to him. But you and I bear God's image, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our likeness and in our image. And he stamped us with his image. And again, image bearing is a sign of ownership. It's a sign of authority over our lives. And so God requires that we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but that we render to God the things that are God's. And we have God's stamp of himself on us. And so we render ourselves, our whole selves, to God. He can have the money. Caesar can have the money. But God gets all the rest. He gets all the rest of who we are. And this is just one more way that Jesus taught about what a true disciple is. 
we have been learning about what a true disciple is uh, ever since they've been on the way from all the way north in Caesarea Philippi down into Jericho and now into Jerusalem as, teach, as Jesus has been teaching them about what a life of discipleship requires. And we've seen that uh, he who wants to save his life must lose it for the sake of the gospel. That whoever wants to be first must be last and be a servant of all. That a true disciple of God is a slave of all. Uh, that a true disciple doesn't live to be served, but to serve and to give his life's life as a ransom for many. Uh, that a true disciple responds in faith and follows Jesus. And here we learn that a true disciple gives his entire self to Jesus. And so what we see here is that God's ownership of us requires that we give our whole selves to him. So how do we as Christians live in the world balancing what belongs to the government and what belongs to God? Well, it's not really that complicated, is it? Uh, in civil matters, we are to obey the government uh, as long as we can. We're to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So we pay our taxes, we obey the laws that the government has established unless they contradict a, a law of God. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But in every other aspect of our lives, we render to God what is God's. We dedicate ourselves to serving him. We look for opportunities to advance his kingdom. A God's stamp of ownership on our lives requires that we give our whole selves to him. And Jesus is our example. Though he never committed a single sin, Jesus gave his life for us, for our sins. He hung on the cross, paying the debt that we owe for our sins, the highest price anyone could pay to satisfy God's wrath and to save us from the penalty that we deserve. And so we owe our very lives to God, not only because we bear his image, but because Jesus paid our ransom to rescue us from the punishment that we deserve. And so when we obey God and believe in Jesus, instead of death, God gives us eternal life. And so it's not too much of him, uh, for him to ask of us to give our lives back to him that he purchased for our glory. Now, after this interaction, Mark noted that they were amazed at him, verse 17, amazed. None of Jesus' enemies could handle his intellectual brilliance. Uh, they must have been so frustrated uh, that Jesus so easily evaded uh, their question, uh, but with truth, right, with truth that they would understand, and, and they thought they had him, but they didn't have him. Uh, he used this opportunity to teach. So first, the chief priests and the scribes, they failed. We looked at that last week. Now the, the Pharisees and the Herodians have failed, and so now the Sadducees take their shot. And here the question is about the issue of the resurrection. So this is verses 18 to 27, Mark chapter 12. Uh, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second married her and died leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven children, seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
but regarding the fact that the dead rise again. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So we've talked about the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Sadducees, verse 18, they're another religious party in Israel. And like I said earlier, we, we tend to lump all these people together. Uh, but the Sadducees were very different from the Pharisees. Whereas the Pharisees believed in the entire Hebrew scriptures, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of Moses, uh, the Pentateuch, we call that. And so they rejected the oral tradition that the Pharisees believed. They didn't believe in any of that. They just stuck to the first five books. But the, the distinguishing feature that Mark mentions himself here uh, in the first verse that we're looking at is that they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after death. And that's why they were sad, you see. I'll be here all week. <laughs> so the hypothetical they presented to Jesus was designed to make a mockery of the resurrection. That's what this was designed to do. Well, what is the basis of the hypothetical? Where does this come from? Well, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 15. We're talking about the law of leveret marriage. That's what's going on here. And the gist of that law is that if a brother dies, uh, the next brother in line, the next unmarried brother, is to marry his widow. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, you want to keep that brother's family name going. So what happens is that the, the child who is born of that marriage is given the name of the deceased brother and that child inherits the deceased brother's property. Uh, so in this way, the property stays in the family, and it protects the widow who has no means of support without the husband. So uh, this is the idea of leveret marriage. And so the Sadducees invent this preposterous story about how one brother dies, and then six brothers follow, and they all fail uh, to produce an heir. They all die before they can do that. And then the wife dies. And so uh, you know, whose wife will she be? Because she was married to seven different guys. Uh, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And it really does seem like they're ridiculing the idea of resurrection. Like Just because they've come up with this ridiculous hypothetical that there's no way you can work out an answer to this question, well, because of that, resurrection itself must not be true. And so uh, they believe this, though, in their minds, by coming up with this ridiculous hypothetical proves the fact that resurrection could not be true. And so Jesus' response is quickly uh, correcting their beliefs, verses 24 through 27. Uh, he said they're wrong on two fronts. Number one, verse 24, you do not believe in the scriptures. And number two, you do not believe in the power of God. Now, imagine saying that to the Sadducees. These are, a lot of them are on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. These are the highest people in the land. It's like telling the Supreme Court judges, you don't know the law. Let me tell you the law, right? You would never do that, but Jesus can do that because he has this authority. And so they don't believe in the scriptures or the power of God. And then Jesus explained both of these fallacies in reverse order. So first, how did they not understand the power of God? Well, verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they, are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So the Sadducees' misconception is that if there is a resurrection, that marriage would be resumed after the resurrection. And now you've got a problem because there are seven uh, husbands. Whose wife will she be? Jesus said, 
you're wrong about that. Marriage is a God-created institution designed primarily to propagate humanity because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Because of the fall, sin and death entered into the world, and now we all die. And so if the human race is going to continue, we have to have human reproduction. And that's why we marry on earth. Now, God can overcome the law of sin and death. Uh, and so for those who believe in Jesus Christ, for those who believe in his sacrificial death and his resurrection, God will raise us from the dead never to die again. And so therefore, marriage and procreation will not be necessary in heaven. Uh, we will become like angels in heaven. We will not become angels when we die. A lot of bad theology has come from this verse and movies like uh, the Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, right, where an angel gets his wings. And, and so there's a lot of bad theology that comes out of this. We will become like angels in that we will become immortal beings like angels. We will not die once we uh, get to heaven, and so we will not require reproduction. And so uh, the marriage and the reproduction is no longer necessary. And so their, their silly hypothetical about the resurrection doesn't change the reality of the resurrection, uh, but to them, uh, this was an insurmountable problem to, to the Sadducees. Now, it makes me sad to think that Molly and I will not be married uh, when we get to heaven. That doesn't seem like a good thing to me. Uh, but we always say uh, to each other, we'll find each other, uh, and we're going to hang out together. We'll have a good time together uh, for all eternity. Uh, and I believe we will. But uh, whereas now, you know, we have earthly responsibilities and things we have to take care of, there our sole mission is going to be to worship God, and that's what we will do. So first, they did not understand the power of God to raise the dead, nor did they understand the purpose of marriage. And second, they didn't understand the scriptures. You know, Jesus could have gone to other Old Testament passages. He could have gone, for example, to, to Daniel chapter 12 to show why they were wrong. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Or Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. And there are other passages he could have gone to, too. But since they didn't believe in those books as authoritative, uh, Jesus went to them with the books that they did believe were authoritative. Uh, it's, it's, and I think it was really kind of Jesus to do that. Even though they're trying to trap him, it's like he says to them, look, you guys don't want to believe in these books? Fine. You're wrong, but fine. Let me show you from the scriptures you do believe where you are wrong. And so that's what he does. And I just think that's incredibly graceful of Jesus to, to use the books that they believed in, to meet them where they were, right? And that's what Jesus does for each one of us. We were each, before we came to faith, we were wrong about so many things, right? And yet Jesus comes to us where we are. He meets us where we are, and he says, let me show you where you're wrong. Let me show you why you should believe. And he causes us to believe. And I think that's amazingly graceful of him. So how did they not understand the scriptures? Verse 26, back in Exodus at the burning bush, uh, God introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus' point was, these patriarchs, though they died earthly deaths 2,000 years ago, they are still alive. Presently, they are alive. Uh, they live in heaven with God. And so death uh, does not mean extinction like the Sadducees thought. It's just transferring to a new form of existence. And so our existence will no longer be physical. It will be spiritual until God reunites our bodies with our souls after he comes again. But eternal life, not death, is God's promise to all those who trust in Jesus. 
And then Jesus leaves them with this word of warning in verse 27. This word of warning. He is, present tense, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. And so this word, a greatly, uh, means that they are way off base, right? That's one thing that greatly means. But it also means greatly in the sense of you guys have serious consequences uh, to believing what you believe. You are greatly mistaken. The consequence to not believing in the resurrection is going to mean eternal separation from God for you. And so Jesus warned them to change their thinking. Change your thinking. Don't think like that or this judgment is coming on you. So two different traps, death and taxes, uh, both designed to get Jesus to say something that would implicate him uh, in some kind of sedition against Rome or trouble with the people, uh, and you have these questions coming from two different groups. Uh, and both failed, but both gave Jesus opportunities to teach not only them, but all the people who were gathered there, very busy time, it's Passover season, uh, like the mall at Christmas, right? There's a lot of people there, and they all would have had a chance to hear this teaching uh, from Jesus' enemies. So uh, let's close here with a couple of applications. Uh, I'm gonna have two from each one of these stories. So on the question of whether to pay taxes to Caesar, God demands obedience to governing authorities. Uh, Jesus taught in this passage that we must pay our taxes. And in Romans 13, Paul says, we are to be subject to the governing authorities because God has established those authority. Uh, so there's no excuse for not paying taxes. There's no excuse for not obeying the laws of the land unless they ask us to directly contradict something God says. We are not in a position to say, well, you know, I don't like the way they're spending my tax money. I don't agree with this particular policy. God has established these people as authorities. And so like it or not, they are the ones in power. Uh, Daniel 2.21 says, God raises up kings and also brings them down. So for whatever purposes God has, Caesar, our Caesar, our government, is in charge now. He has established him and given him authority. And he can bring Caesar down whenever he wants and put in a new government. But until he does, we obey this government uh, because uh, this is God's charge to us. And, and we may think we're getting away with something if we're not paying our taxes. Uh, but Jesus knows, even if the government doesn't. So God demands obedience to governing authorities. But secondly, uh, God demands obedience to himself. You know, it can hurt to pay taxes, can it? Uh, we write checks for 20 or 30% of our income every paycheck, and we think, well, you know, that money could surely be used better than the government is using it, and for the most part, you're probably right. Uh, but that doesn't give us license to usurp the governor, governing power's authority. But that's 20 to 30%. Think of what God demands. He demands 100%. Every bit of us. There's nothing left of us that we don't owe back to God. He stamped us with his image, his mark of ownership. And so Romans 12, as Paul said, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And so the idea is that with God as our owner, he's got the right to demand whatever he wants from us. And this word to render means to meet a contractual obligation. God has purchased us. He's paid our ransom. We owe our lives back to him. And that's what God's ownership demands of us. He demands our all. Just as the coin had Caesar's image on it, uh, our image is God on us. And so others should see God's image on us. Now on the question of the resurrection, know the scriptures and the power of God. You know, the Bible is God's gift to us. Uh, in it, God has revealed himself. He's revealed his son. He's revealed his power. He's revealed the means of salvation. Uh, and 
spiritual growth happens through reading them. So it's mind-boggling to me that any Christian would call themselves a Christian and ignore God's revelation of himself to us. Why would anybody do that? If we're going to have a relationship with God, we have to study, we have to read the Bible every day because this is how God reveals himself to us. This is how God shows his will to us. This is how God changes us from the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Sadducees, they thought they knew and they understood the scriptures, but they didn't. And because they misunderstood the scriptures, well, they didn't know God's power to raise these mortal bodies from the dead. So know the scriptures and know the power of God. And finally, rejoice that there is a resurrection. You know, I don't know why the scribes or the, why the Sadducees were so smug and condescending about the thought that there is no resurrection. Like, why would anybody want to believe that? Why would anybody think themselves superior to anybody else uh, by believing that there is no resurrection? It's hopeless to believe that this life is all there is. Uh, so thank God that there is a resurrection, that it's coming for all of us. He promises that we will all be raised again. But Hebrews 9.27 says that it is given to man once to die and then the judgment. Once to die and then the judgment. So we will all die and we will all face God one day. And eternal life with God or eternal separation from God is what is at stake here. Resurrection is a fact. The only question is, where are you going to spend your eternity? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation and your resurrection will be a glorious, glorious thing. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage. Uh, Lord, how uh, easily and wonderfully Jesus uh, was able to answer his questioners. And Lord, how it teaches us such incredible lessons uh, on the resurrection and uh, Lord, on, on your will, your stamp of authority on our lives. We're so happy for these things, Lord, and we just give you all praise and honor. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that we would become better disciples of Jesus and that we would resemble him more every day and that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through these verses uh, throughout this week and help us to become more like Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen.